Good morning, everyone. Good morning to our friends online as well. We're so happy uh, that we can be together and to gather around the Word of God, for there is nothing like it, is there? And this morning, we're going to be spending time mainly in the book of Matthew. I know that some of you love to use your own Bibles. Um, Our texts will be coming up on screen, most of them. Um, But we're going to be camping and spending our time mostly in the book of Matthew and then towards the end we go to the book of Revelation. Who do you say that I am? There are moments in Jesus' ministry that are recorded where the writer seems to capture an intimate look into the heart of Jesus. To so many, he was a mystery. Someone who could multiply food seemingly after teaching people all day. And yet at the same time, he was pushing back against the leaders of the church. He was concerned for the people because the leaders of the church seemed to be determined to keep them in darkness. And so he called them out. And at the same time, with calling them out, he was longing for them to turn to him so that he might soften their hearts, that they would give him a chance to love them. But they wouldn't. Matthew records a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. But before we get there, the day starts... In the beginning of Matthew 16, with the Pharisees and Sadducees, they come to Jesus and they demand a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. Let's pick it up in verse 2. He replied, You know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow, red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign, but the only sign that I will give them is a sign of the prophet Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away. Jesus references back to Jonah. He was a prophet that God had sent to the city of Nineveh. This place was steeped in evil and violence. And yet when God's man arrives in the city and starts to declare God's judgment on the place, the people looked up, they listened and they turned their lives around. They put on sackcloth The king put on sackcloth and he declared that nobody in the city would eat or drink, even the animals, until they had repented to God, until they called out and confessed their sins. The Pharisees and Sadducees get the message. Jesus is not seeing the same spirit in them. Why? Because they are too proud because they can't even consider that he could possibly be the Messiah. 
verse 5. Later, after they crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered they had forgotten to bring any bread. Watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus warns them that their unbelief will seep into the fabric of their thinking. As surely as yeast goes into the whole of the dough, the thinking of the Pharisees and the Sadducees will affect their outlook on the gospel. But the disciples do what we so often do. They get into an argument about who forgot to bring the bread. Can't you see it? Verse 7, at this they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying. And so he said, you have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? Don't you understand even yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 that I fed with the five loaves and the baskets of leftovers you picked up? Or the 4,000 I fed with the seven loaves and the large baskets of leftovers you picked up. Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? So again, I say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then at last, they understood that he wasn't speaking about yeast in bread but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The lesson is not yet over. In verse 13, we catch up with Jesus and and the disciples when they come to Caesarea. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The group is together. And Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? As the disciples answer him, Jesus brings it home. But who do you say that I am? This isn't about crowds or gossip. It's not about the workplace or the marketplace. It's not about what the Pharisees or the Sadducees think. Jesus locks eyes with them and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? We have no idea how much Jesus needed to hear that they got it. 
that they knew that he was the Messiah. He had his father speak audibly over him three times during his ministry. The first time is at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The second time is at Mount Tabor, not far from Nazareth. Jesus is revealed in all of his glory for Peter, James and John to witness. Mark chapter 9 verse 7 says, Just then a radiant cloud began to spread over them, enveloping them all. And God's voice suddenly spoke from the cloud saying, This is my beloved son and you need to always listen to him. The third time is in the final week of Christ's life. He's riding a donkey into Jerusalem to fulfil the prophecy of the Messiah. As he contemplates his death and he wants to give glory and honour to his father. We read in John chapter 12, Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this purpose that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it had thunders, thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken. His father reaches out to him throughout his ministry to assure him, I'm with you, I understand your sacrifice. But Jesus needs to know, do the disciples understand why he came? Do they understand the gulf that sin has created? Do they understand that the son must die so the people can be saved? So Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter calls him Messiah. Messiah, the one who had been promised, has arrived. He's come to save his people. And the one who would be the foundation on which the church would be built. At this point, Jesus had travelled all over the area. He had been teaching, he'd healed people, he'd forgiven sins, he'd walked on water, he had even raised people from the dead. But Jesus was not a sideshow. He wasn't someone to be wondered about. He was the Son of God and he was able to bear the weight of the church on his shoulders. The Bible clearly identifies him as being the cornerstone of the church. Sometimes we make the mistake in our anxiety or enthusiasm where we think that the church rests on us. It never does, it never has and it never will. Jesus allows us the privilege of being the church and delivering the good news. Something happened that day. With the recognition 
that Jesus was the Messiah, it opened the way for him to have a more difficult conversation with his group of friends. He was able to open up about how the mission was going to look. It seemed that the conversation about the coming sacrifice couldn't take place unless they knew that he was the Messiah. In Matthew 16, verse 21, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. It breaks my heart that Jesus had to explain that it would be the leaders of the church who would be the hands that would bring this about. As I read through this account, I thought about that night in Gethsemane. Peter, James and John are invited to come with Jesus and accompany him while he prays. Let's pick it up in Matthew 26 and we're going to be reading from verse 36 to 43. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief unto the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me for even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open. If we had seen Jesus that night, we would have seen a man broken by grief. It's one thing to know that you need your friends to pray, but it is an entirely different thing when you would like your friends to pray. And instead, they sleep. They cannot pray for even one hour. And it's not the only time that Jesus feels alone. On the cross, we see him call out to his father. He's dying. And he feels the weight of all the sin of every person pressing down on him. And he can't sense his father 
for the first time. And he wonders, is it too much? Has this thing finally separated us? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Dad, I thought we were in this together. Where are you? I'm abandoned. I'm alone. I'm dying. Just because someone isn't speaking, it doesn't mean that they have left. God is right there with him. He will not, he cannot leave his child. We have no idea what it cost the father to watch his only son die. This cost them both everything. And we wonder, why did the bar for sin have to be set so high? Because it's so deadly. It's so evil and insidious. We don't realise how used to it we've got. And God knows that we are coming home to live with him and with each other in eternity. And he can't ever let us go through this again. So once and for all time, sin is dealt with for every person. Finally, Jesus knows it's okay. And as he lifts up his voice to call out the final victory shout, he relinquishes his spirit and he dies. In that moment, we were all set free. The Apostle John, who was with Jesus that day when he asked, Who do you say that I am? Who was with him that night in Gethsemane and fell asleep when Jesus needed him? Who stayed with him through the unjust trial? Who wouldn't leave him during that horrible crucifixion? Is given a gift by God of seeing into the future. He is shown heaven and he takes us in to the throne room in the book of Revelation. In chapter 4, John sees Jesus sitting on a throne. He's surrounded by 24 elders, all of whom are sitting on thrones. The colours that he describes Each of these elders is wearing a crown. This is the church which Jesus said would be established, that would stand forever and ever. In the 24 elders, we see the timelessness of the gospel. We're reminded of the 12 tribes of Judah and the 12 disciples from the New Testament. This is the church that is surrounding the throne of God. And in all the brilliant beauty, there is a song that is being played over and over again. That song declares one thing, that God is holy. As the elders look at Jesus, 
they rise up. The crown that is on their head is a reward put there by Jesus. The Bible tells us that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We're so eager for God to keep his promise and to forget some of the things that we've done. But at the same time, as humans, we're often most keen to keep alive the record of those who have hurt us. God is telling us that we can honour his sacrifice on the cross and choose to forgive, choose to let go of that record. God chooses to forgive each of us completely and crown us with his love. As John gazes upon this heavenly scene, he sees the elders rise up from their thrones In an act of worship and love, they go towards the throne where Jesus is. They remove their crowns and they place it at the base of Jesus' throne. In that moment, it is enough to be with him. They don't need crowns or thrones or the magnificence of heaven. Everything they need is right before them and they must worship him. He is their everything. Friends, today, who is Jesus to you? Maybe you're in the crowd and you're being fed bread or maybe you're asking questions. That's okay. Jesus is patient. He can wait while you get to know him. But he's looking at each of us earnestly and he's asking, who do you say that I am? What he's really wanting to know is, do you understand that I would rather give up everything than give up you? And as we come to our moment of really understanding how much we are loved We have to do what the elders did and throw down everything that's in our arms. Can we let go of all our pride and all of our achievement, all that we have in the balance and say, I will not let anything get in the way of knowing you, Jesus. I'm at the stage of my life where I am really tired of mountaintops and dry valleys. I want to want Jesus, that I might truly know him. Don't let me get caught in the crowd and I would miss you, Jesus. Don't let me get intoxicated by the applause of others, that I would neglect the greatest gift that has been given to me. The gift of knowing you. The elders realise in heaven what we need to realise here on earth. Our greatest reward isn't heaven. It isn't a crown. It certainly isn't a throne. Our greatest reward 
that we have is Jesus. And to be in his presence is our gift. I can just imagine what a church would look like with no crowns. A church that knows its greatest reward is him. Not how much he uses us, not how much we can hold. You have the reward. It's his presence. No crown, no throne. Why do I even need them, Jesus? When I'm in your presence, you are enough.